I'm going to make sure I'm on. Uh, so we've been sharing uh, stories, and I do want to invite you back next Sunday at, at 9.15. Uh, Pastor Charlie and his wife Erin are going to share their personal stories. And so if you would like to come, just hear uh, what God's done specifically in their life. Uh, come back uh, next Sunday morning a little bit early. It'll be upstairs in our other building. There will be coffee, and you can hear from them. Uh, but this morning, I, I want to introduce you to my friend Daniel. Hello. Hello. Just speak into this. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Daniel, um, before we jump into it, why don't you just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, my name is Daniel Chen. I came from Shanghai, China about six, seven years ago. I went to PCA, uh, Pentagon Christian Academy, and now I go to UTA. Yes, right? PCA. Mava. Ma- Mava. <laughs> and occasionally you play the violin? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You dabble? Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so we don't have a lot of time, but uh, Daniel, I just want to give you the opportunity um, to share, you know, just one aspect of God's goodness you've experienced with our church. So um, one aspect uh, specifically great for me is he's a sovereign plan for me. Um, um, over, over my life, um, I was supposed to, when I came to the exchange student program, I was supposed to go to Michigan, but somehow I ended up here in Texas. And, You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I lived with the host family, who was Christian. So after a year, I went to Grand Prairie High School. Um, and after a year, they're like, oh, I really like you. Uh, I really like you too. So they're like, hey, why don't you stay? We'll find you a school. So I go to PCA. Okay. And I, I planned none of this. Like, there was n- nothing was in the plan. So it just kind of happens. And um, I meet all kinds of awesome people. And I go to UTA. I wasn't really planning on that too. So. Uh, and I met, just in my dorm one day, I decided to go down and uh, check what people's doing. And I met Taylor and Jameson, they're studying Bible. So I came here to college group, and now I came to Park Springs. So um, I feel like God has always had a plan for me. He, he put all these little things or details that lead me to where I am right now that I could never ask for, all these great things. So uh, that's one of the aspects he has in my life that I'm very grateful for. That's awesome. That's awesome. His sovereignty. Uh, and so I would also ask Daniel that just from what you've experienced with God, what is one way you'd like to encourage or a piece of advice you would give our church body today as, as they follow Jesus? Okay. Um, actually, you gave me this advice. Sometimes too. So uh, <laughs> um, I feel like, and it's really helpful. The biggest, I've learned this and looking back on my experience, this is very helpful. So uh, I feel like, um, it's very easy to view Jesus as like one of the most important part in your life. And then you always figure um, how much time or how much part of my life I give to Jesus. And um, oftentimes you fall short and you feel guilty or like I'm not doing good enough. But um, you, I, I think when you view it as like Jesus not is just the most important part of your life, he is the point of your life. And um, everything you do, every every daily life, every little thing, every big thing, every big decision, small decisions, uh, becomes very helpful or not clear all the time, but very helpful. And uh, it gives you confidence and uh, get rid of your anxiety and all these things. And um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> to make Jesus the point. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Daniel. <laughs> uh, thank you.
every single one of us. And so sometimes it's hard to capture uh, the uh, amount of what God is doing, the volume. But at the end of the day, if we see pockets of God's transforming work in other people's lives, it helps us realize that it's also happening in our own. That's the reason why we, we kind of jump into the Word and, and look specifically at some of the stories of God meeting people in, in very different circumstances of life, the same God meeting very unique circumstances and doing incredible and amazing work. So we're going to be jumping into Luke 17 today, and um, not all the scriptures I'm going to be referring to are going to be up on the screen, and that's somewhat intentional. Here's the reason, is that the desire is, is that as we think about combing through the scriptures, I know one of the most uh, beneficial things for me is to, to have my own Bible or to have it up on, on my, uh, my iPad or my phone, and I'm looking through and I'm, I'm reading it for myself and I'm digesting and I'm highlighting things where the Lord's speaking to me through his word. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, I'd invite you to open it to Luke chapter 17. Now, I will say, just kind of uh, tangentially, uh, yesterday was a big day for, uh, for myself. I, I celebrated being married to an amazing woman for 22 years. We met our anniversary yesterday. Uh, so yeah, it was a good day. Um, she, was, she was booked up with the women's retreat, so we didn't spend any time together on our anniversary. But here's how we celebrate. I don't know, like, it used to be you'd go through each, each year, and the year would have us, like, there's a, uh, a gold anniversary, and a silver anniversary, and a paper anniversary, and a flowers anniversary. I, didn't know, I don't know what 22 years is, what, what you're supposed to celebrate, but I'll tell you how we celebrated it. And this is just indicative of the fact that we're getting old. Like, we were asleep by 9 o'clock. <laughs> like, woohoo, celebrate, go to bed. Like, it is awesome that you're like, oh, I can finally go to sleep. And I'm sure our girls are like, what is going on with my parents? And like, we're sleeping, and this is like a win. Like, we didn't feel discouraged about it at all. It was no failure on our part. We're like, we get to sleep. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe I just long for that, but it was a big day for us. And so uh, we celebrated 22 years by sleeping. So I'm going to coin it. Like, that's going to be how you celebrate 22 years of marriage, is you sleep. So... Nonetheless, as I was walking through this, uh, this passage, we're going to be looking at the passage kind of midway in Luke chapter 17 about the 10 lepers who were healed. Um, but as I was walking through this text and just wrestling with it, I was kind of surprised at where my mind went. And here's why. I was actually thinking how modern day Christianity is a lot like Halloween. <laughs> like, this dude has lost his mind. He needs more sleep. Let me just, let me explain as we go along. So Halloween, always been a bit of a weird holiday for me, right? So you, you, you dress up in all of these things, and many of people put masks on and hide behind those masks. And, and what do they do? They, they walk around their neighborhood, and their desire is to get something from people they don't really know, that they'll never have a relationship with. But then also, if you're a smart Halloweener or trick-or-treater, you know the houses to go to. What are those houses, kids? They got the full-size candy bars. That's right. You, I mean, you know them. So you got to be first on the street. You got to make sure that they wrote or not. What are the houses that you miss? The, they give coloring books and fruit. Like, we'll pass on that stuff. Full-size candy bars. I'm in. And then there's no connection throughout the rest of the year with regards to those people, really. So you go to their house. You want something from them. They know that you want something from them. They give it to you, and everyone's happy. And yet modern-day Christianity seems a lot like that these days. 
me see if I can draw the connection. Many Christians come to church and we generally wear our best. We dress up. We put proverbial masks on so that people don't actually have to see what's going on inside. We make requests that we hope will be met. And when they're met, we move on. Semi-void of a deep, real relationship that actually stands the test of time throughout the days and weeks and circumstances. And so what Luke 17, I think, is going to challenge us with in numerous ways is to be a bit willing to self-reflect. And we're going to do that through the lenses of the mercy and the miracles that God has already provided for each of us. How many of you know that you have received miracles from the Lord throughout your life? There's not one of us where the Lord has not met us and provided an incredible saving miracle outside of his hand that it would have never happened had he not been intentional and involved, that he has given us gifts, not the least of which is salvation, certainly. But those prayer requests that you and I have prayed in the stillness of the night, when we've woken up in the middle of the night and we have asked God and pled to God for things and for his work to be done, and he's answered in loud and unimaginable ways. God has heard from his people. He has responded to his people. And the self-reflection component of this entire passage is how have we responded to his response? What has been the real aspect of what the work that the Lord has done? Because if it's true that you and I here who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are walking miracles, then there's something about this text that moves us beyond just the fact that God has been good. We sang it this morning, right? His mercy endures forever. We've, we've sung and declared his faithfulness throughout all generations. And, and in part, we believe it. But there's levels or categories or aspects of our heart where literally and practically we aren't sure it's really true. Luke 17 is going to push us in ways that maybe we don't want to be pushed. But nonetheless, push it does. Thus, the reason why I encourage you to open the scriptures is because I want you to know that it doesn't come from my desire to push you. I've walked through and we walk through different parts of each other's journey in different ways. And so this doesn't come from a standpoint of, I know what they're going through. And I'm going to use this passage to poke my finger at where I think they need to change. This has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with how the Lord begins to expose and tactically cut away aspects of our our lives. If I'm right that modern day Christianity has more similarities to Halloween than we'd like to admit, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that what God's going to do through Luke 17 is pull the mask off. I don't think that the Lord is going to let us hide if we're honest and sincere in letting this text open us. So with that said, I need to pray for us (laughs) because God tends to churn and cut and do some things that I want our hearts to be ready for. 
So let me just lead us in a quick prayer as we move into the text this morning. Would you pray with me? God, Father, we know that you are listening to the prayers of your people. You're here in our midst. You promise it. You've given us the Holy Spirit who's alive and at work in our life. You tell us that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the very depths of our heart. And so today, in preparation, we say, cut away. We know that you're going to put us on the operating table. We just want to be ready for it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would get all of the distractions out of our minds and allow us the moment to just attend to the very, very, very deep work that you plan to do in us this morning. For your glory, we would ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So here we go. Before we jump in, I want to, we're going to be in Luke 17, and it's 11 through 19. The verses we're, we're really going to focus on. And it's, it's actually, not that every miracle is not unique, but this one is really unique because it's a miracle, one of the only ones we get in the scriptures, of a mass healing. So it tells us throughout the scriptures that God heals all these diseases, that Christ in his ministry is, is healing those who all come to them. But this is a large group of people with the same condition. They are all crying out for mercy. All of their stories and all of their journeys is different, save the fact that they are all suffering from the same condition. And that condition is the only thing that identifies them. So different parents, different upbringings, different cultures, different situations, anything that would allow people to see differences in one another, isn't it not amazing that suffering tends to take all of those things away? That's them. They're fixed. They're suffering with leprosy. Now, leprosy is a condition that has a huge impact on how a person is able to relate to those around them and actually causes dramatic physical deformity. So there is no doubt that there is a level of physical, social, and emotional isolation the reason why there are 10 lepers on this road in this place that it doesn't even tell us where it is except that it's in between two places is because that's where lepers go. <laughs> they can only hang out with one another. They can't be with their family because it creates a level of uncleanliness according to the Jewish law and leprosy is highly contagious. They don't want to get anyone sick so their suffering has isolated them from the people that they love. And the only people that they can be close to or the people that actually suffer like them. And they can look at one another and see their own pain and their own struggle and their own isolation and their cries in utter unison as Jesus is walking by is have mercy on us. Jesus isn't supposed to come close. And at the same time, the lepers are actually supposed to distance themselves from anybody that doesn't have leprosy. They have to cry out if they're walking outside of their predetermined circles. Leper, leper, because that's the only way people can then know and distance themselves from them so that they don't become unclean and sick. Imagine if you had to do that or I had to do that with my suffering, right? That I had to walk in the midst of a community and a nation and cry out what my physical or emotional deformity was. We don't cry out like that anymore. 
externally, but we do internally, don't we? That's the mask. That's where we tend to separate ourselves to protect others from what we would say they can't handle. That's what suffering does. It puts us in a position where we feel wholly different than those around us and that we then pre-reject ourselves so that we don't have to, one, risk rejection from others, or two, have to really admit the searing intensity that the struggle and the internal spiritual or emotional deformity really exists. You put words to it, it makes it real, does it not? Okay, so that's the stage. But before he gets there, before we look at verse 11, I need us to realize how Jesus sets the stage in his teaching ministry. First, he talks about temptation in the beginning of of chapter 17 and saying that temptation is going to come from all over the place. But then he gives us this really difficult category to wrestle with before he moves into the healing of the 10 lepers. I want to look at verses 7 through 10 for just a second. Let me read it for you. If you have your Bibles open, I invite you to read along. Here's what he says. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also... When you have done all the things you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. (laughs) It's a popular text, right? Memorize it, put it on your fridge. So here's what Jesus is doing in beginning to take the masks away. To move us out of hiding, he exposes the very paradigm by which we actually live our lives, almost universally. What he's saying is, God is not moved by your resume. He's not somehow in some way excited that you've got 19 degrees and that you've been at the church for 20 years. And that that then is the reason why God works in your life. We live that way though don't we there's not a sense in which often when we come to god in the internal parts of our lives where we know that as we come to jesus we're not going to be rejected we still have this longing and hunger to communicate to the god of the universe what we've done for him (laughs) how lucky he is to have us on his team It, it it shifts the paradigm in such a way that ultimately what he's exposing in the life of the disciples is that the reason they're able to serve and love solely because of what Christ has done in their life. No other reason. It's not as though there was a vacancy in some position that Jesus had predetermined and Jesus was looking at the resumes and chose the best for this job. But that's how we live. If Jesus was choosing the best for the job, the disciples would have not been the disciples. They're a ragtag bunch of hooligans, literally. Fishermen, tax collectors, 
betrayers of their country. These people were broken. And Jesus meets them. What he wants at the end of this text is for the reality of what God's work has been in our life to be the reason we respond to whatever he calls us to. Obedience is a natural result of seeing the fullness in the work of God in our lives. And what does it do? It protects us from pride. Because we could never say, look what I've done. If we want to stand in the place and try and share glory with God, we have an issue. God doesn't share glory. It's his and his alone. It's his work. So that's part of the mask. But then he moves into this incredible, like, let's lay it out and label and testify to the reality of how this actually looks. Because this seems a bit, well, maybe harsh, right? Like, is it wrong for me to just want to recline at the table after I've done work and just hang out and feel more valuable and more important than the rest of the peasants that might be serving Jesus, right? Haven't I done this longer? Hasn't there, doesn't it increase some level of value that I get in those things? What if, and then you, you move back to the, the, the laborer deserves his wage earlier on in the New Testament. Whether you worked an hour or all day long, it's about the work that Jesus has called us to. So he moves to that reality of saying, I see myself as that that has just received the gift of God in my life and called me to a relationship with Christ and that is infinitely more valuable than anything else in this world. It's all I want. It's all I should want. It's all I want to want. <laughs> just sometimes not there. And so parable is it a parable. The story of the 10 lepers moves us into that place. Already this hanging thing that's out there of I'm just an unworthy servant. I'm just so grateful to be in the presence of my master that that's all that matters to me. And I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. I'm not worthy to even be doing the work that he's called me to do. Literally, based on my resume, I am totally disqualified. And yet, what a great reality to be reminded of. Unworthy, but servant nonetheless. Then the ten lepers. Let's, let's look at this passage together just briefly. Luke chapter 17 verse 11 starts this. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. It doesn't give us the exact location, but we would guess that this is where nobody wanted to go. It was filled with at least ten lepers. And nobody else could be around. So this, if there's any place you would want to avoid, it's this one. Right? How much did we do the same thing? If there's any place that Jesus wants to avoid in our life, you're going to take a wide berth. Nope, he goes right there. And as he entered the village, he, met, he was met by ten leopards who stood at a distance because of the law. And they lifted up their voices. So in unison, here's their crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So again, there is this sense that their searing suffering is so great that all that they can ask for is mercy, which is ultimately all they really need. <laughs> it wasn't that their unison cry was, take away my leprosy. 
or fix this situation or help just me. It's have mercy on all of us. Their plea, their cry of desperation is actually a really good one. And they address him as master, which I think is incredibly poignant and drawing us back to the text before. Because what he wants us to realize is that the reality of Jesus' mastery over us is that we are his servants. He's calling the shots. He gets the glory. And he's calling us to be a part of that relationship. What does he tell them? Have mercy on us. And now this is the most, one of the most unique responses that I would think that Jesus would give. Verse 14. When we saw them, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. They'd already been to the priests before. The priests were actually the ones that determined that they had leprosy. And that's it. It wasn't, you're healed, everything's good, you're all set. It was a confusing response. But it meant, at a very bare minimum, that they could leave where they are. That they had been told by their master, by rabbi, by teacher Jesus, that they could actually make their way back to the priests. Look what happens. And as they went, they were cleansed. It is striking that often the very healing that Jesus is dispensing in our life is as we go, as we walk in obedience, as we follow the call of God in our lives and allow him to be the one that has mastery over us. It's in the going that we receive and experience the healing and the miracles that he's provided for our life. So often we think to ourselves, if I say the right thing, if I pray the right prayer, if I teach my kids the right things, if I protect everything around me and I do everything right, then Jesus must move and heal and meet my requests. Halloween Christianity all over again. Yet we default to it all the time. That's not how God has moved It seems as though in the midst of this situation, God is moved by desperation. That just this crying out to God of, I've got nothing left. All I need is for you to see me and give me mercy. And in the process of that, the mercy we receive from God is the miracle. Is it not? If we see ourselves as unworthy servants, as those who are just so grateful to be in the presence of the king... then then just receiving his mercy is the miracle because it reinforces and redefines the relationship. It tells us who we are in relationship to what he does. So our desire is not a specific outcome. Our desire is intimacy. Our desire is more of Jesus. And as they go to show themselves to the priest, they're cleansed. All 10 of them. They all experience a tremendous miracle in the most amazing of ways their skin that has <coughs> excuse me been deformed is now becoming formed their social isolation that has distanced themselves from the people that they deeply love is now being restored and repaired everything that has been their identity is no longer their identity because of jesus's mercy hallelujah right? that's us in so many significant ways But now, the mask really gets pulled off. Here's what happens. Verse 15. Then one of them, 
when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. First time we know that. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? He said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This mass healing is a unique part of the scriptures because it it draws a contrast to our responses that the miracles of God are. That there's a striking reality of how we look inside and really begin to analyze or diagnose our responses to the mercy that you have already been given in Christ. And here's what happens. Nine out of the ten are satisfied temporarily with just being healed. They're happy that God met their needs and that their life was no longer what it used to be, but changed. And so the physical deformities, the emotional isolation, that was enough. They needed no more and wanted no more from God at that moment. <sighs> uh, this, is, this is where it starts to press, does it not? That many of us might be satisfied with God meeting our requests, no more, no less. But one, realize that there was something more significant and substantial than the healing itself. And it was the change that God would do in his heart. The relationship, infinitely more vital and valuable. The connection with the God of the universe in a reality in which Eternity and the presence of Christ in his life as he walks and God does amazing things. A Samaritan who would not have the law and all of these things that they would know, who would already understand social isolation, would be the one that goes deeper into his relationship with the Lord. But he had already been healed. And now it says, your faith has made you well. Many have uh, met God in their prayers for mercy, but many still remain sick. Many of us have experienced overwhelming mercy from God, but remain sick. To carry the Halloween illustration a bit further, we've knocked on the door. God has answered. We've received the gift that he's given, and we've gone our way. So we need him again. And yet, part of the challenge in this text is to move us away from the reality, or the reality that, that meeting God in mercy and that we are all really walking miracles requires something that are, is very difficult for us to do. Here's what it tells us this guy did. He said, one of them saw that he was healed. I honestly think, I think this is supposed to call us to pause because I think for many of us, myself included, we don't normally look back on our journeys and see all the places where God has healed us. 
And so what ends up happening is we're forgetting the presence and potency of God's continual work in our life where our lives are, are now erupting in praise because of all of the places that God has met us in those hard moments and changed us in innumerable ways. Sometimes, if not often, we don't see the healing we've been given. We, we look and things seem better than they were. We're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. We self-reject in relationships with others, but often we self-reject in our relationship with God. Done too much, gone too far, it's too hard. I've, I've had this Halloween Christianity for a really long time. I don't even know what I look like if I pull the mask off. The mask is more familiar to me and more familiar to others. Let's just leave this one alone. But in order to be healed in that deep way, that relational way, which is what happened to this Samaritan, requires seeing where we've been healed and where we need to be healed. It forces us to look in those really dark places and remind ourselves that it's not as though Jesus remains at a distance, but he enters in. When we see the healing, we notice again the power of the healer. We need that reminder on such a regular basis. Okay, so then what? As he moves in, he says, Jesus, in his very poignant way, uh, there were 10 of you. <laughs> Why is only one coming back? Well, was no one found to return and give praise to God except the foreigner? Said them, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. But how? <laughs> he was already well, physically. This is a story about how seeing our sin and seeing the deformities that exist emotionally and physically and turning to Jesus moves us to the place where the salvation provided by God is the relationship that we desire most of all. This is a story about one man, 10, being healed and one being saved. And what does it come on the heels of? Sheer gratitude. <laughs> Just the amazing response of realizing that physical restoration pales in comparison to heart restoration. And all of us have that already if we place our faith in Christ. The guarantee that God is changing, God is working, God is doing things beyond what you can see, think, or feel. The Bible even tells us in the New Testament that you can't even ask big enough, that, that he can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his riches, which are in Christ Jesus. It's through the confines of fully vesting in the relationship with Jesus Christ where we realize how small our affections and desires are. We want temporal healing over heart change because we're satisfied with Halloween Christianity and the things in this world and we miss the most greatest amazing gift of all that Jesus has given us life for eternity and life is found in Him. He loves us and values us and sees our brokenness. There are no masks before the king of the universe. You can't hide and neither can I. But the most challenging part of this text is that Jesus doesn't want you to. 
He just wants you to come. To, to, to do the four things. And I'll finish with this before I get too fired up. Four, four things. That this foreigner who did not have all of the law but had the leprosy, there was things that he saw that had happened and this is how he changed. Four things that I think are critical for us to take away. First thing, he paused. He stopped. One of them saw that he was healed. The Bible says he turned back. Like there was a place where the very journey and trajectory that he was on, in obedience to just go and show yourself to the priest, he recognized the power of his healing and he stopped. So many of us, myself included, are so overwhelmed with all of the things that we got to do that we aren't willing to stop because we're afraid if we stop, everything will fall apart. Like the world revolves around us. And I say this because this is my, one of my deepest challenges. But he, he pauses. He turns back. And then here's what he does. The most amazing things. He turns around in praise. It just says, right, the Bible communicates with utter clarity that he turned back praising God in a loud voice. All of the social isolation, all of the distance, all of those things in terms of his identity didn't matter anymore. He wasn't cared about how people would see him. And you've got to think that as he turned back, the other nine who were going directly to the priest could hear the erupting praise of a guy whose life had just been changed. That's why I love worshiping with you guys. Because we walk along each other's story. And I know for many of you, it is hard to to praise God in the most searing, suffering moments of your life. And yet you're here. And even though I can't always see it because we're behind masks, I know that there's a level of praising that, that we don't have to have pretense that masks don't belong in authentic Christianity. I know your life is broken as is mine. You don't have to prove it to me. You don't have to have some pretense of I've got my act together. God is moved by desperation, not by duty. And so as we come and we cry out and we praise before the God of the universe, there is such a feeling and a knowledge of what God is doing amongst us. And then we posture. Falls at his feet giving thanks. Can I ask a question? You don't have to answer aloud, but I'd love for you to answer inside your own heart. When was the last time you thanked God that your suffering led you closer to him. It was the last time you and I looked at our lives and said, what a mess. This is, I, I, can't, I can't do it. I can't keep doing it. And we pause. And we praise. And we posture. And we proclaim. Your story matters because God is writing it and he matters. He is worth everything. Halloween Christianity doesn't have much place because God is calling us to be sold out followers for Christ wherever he calls us. So we turn and we praise and we posture. We thank God that he is so 
unbelievably good to us that we just can't help tell people and proclaim it from the mountaintops because our Savior lives and he changes. He works. Finally, this is how it worked out in my life just this last year. I know Aaron shared a bit about it at the women's retreat, but I'll just close with this. My mom, we moved her in to um, assisted living or actually memory care a week before COVID hit. (laughs) And so the last nine months of her life were taken from us in the sense that all of the interaction and relationship was virtual. The hugs, the touches, the connections we couldn't have. So I remember praying in those moments for God to just work, for him to heal my mom, to physically allow her to feel cared for. As the months went on, December 27th, she passed away. My prayers began to change. I prayed for healing initially, then I prayed for comfort, and I prayed for relationship. I shared the gospel with her numerous times throughout my life, and kind of tagged on to all of my prayers was that the Lord would work, that she would be saved. The last 30 minutes of her life, I was able to see her. She was unconscious. It was that moment where the very things that should have been praying for all along, I was crying out, desperately asking God to do. She's unconscious and can't understand. I don't know what she can understand. But my prayer was that God would save her because her time was short. So often the desires in my heart were that God would provide temporal resources for the days ahead. But it wasn't until that moment where I realized the thing that I wanted all along was for her to know Jesus. And that's really all that mattered. Because eventually, whether it was on December 27th or a year later, she was still going to die. But she still needed Jesus. You see how this changes everything? Let's pray.